Um, take it and turn to Mark chapter 9. And we're only going to look at four verses from Mark 9 tonight. Mark 9, and we're going to read from verse 38 to verse 41. Let's read that together. Mark 9, 38 to 41. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now Matt texted me a few weeks ago asking me to speak at this gig and this is what he said, right? Let me read the text. Uh, We'd love to have a rallying cry to partnership in the pursuit of mission if you have anything like that in your back catalogue. I like that phrase. It made me feel like... I was in a boy band or something. <laughs> was thinking something about connecting with the mission planting chat from the day before and the value of partnership would be ideal. Perhaps Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, big on spiritual unity, Philippians 1, or maybe Philemon 3 to 7, just some ideas. I'm very happy to chat in person if you'd like. Lots of love, Matty. Kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> Cheeky selfie. But here's why I plumbed for Mark chapter 9. A few weeks ago in our kind of evangelistic Bible study on a Wednesday night, one of the boys led us through the whole of Mark 9. And these little verses, 38 to 41, bugged me. I I didn't quite get them. They sat, you know, like the princess in the pea who couldn't sleep because there was a pea 20 mattresses down? I don't like to associate myself or think of myself as a princess but that idea of this bugging you because you don't it doesn't quite sit with you and so when Matt asked for a rallying cry to partnership in the pursuit of mission this text that had been in my mind made me think well hang on here John is offering a rallying cry to anti-partnership and so I thought speaking on it here would give me the motivation to think about it a little bit more. So, get your head into the narrative and let's see how we get on. Verse 38, teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. So John and the other lads approach Jesus and they basically say, Jesus, we've seen this happening and we've tried to stop it happening. They say to Jesus, listen, Jesus, we saw this other guy. And he was, he was doing what you had commanded us to do, driving out demons. He was this right kind of maverick, lone ranger type guy. But don't worry, Jesus. You don't have to do anything. We sort it out. You know, you call me the sons of thunder. So I brought the thunder. And we tried to stop him. You don't need to worry. Job done. Now, try and get yourself into John's head. What's motivated this kind of ballsy confrontation to Jesus to saying, we tried to stop him? Let me suggest a couple of things. First, John and the rest of the boys are still smarting from their own inability to cast out a demon. 
Look back to Mark chapter 9 and verse 17. We read, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him at the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at the teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So this has just happened. This has recently occurred where a boy, a wee boy, had a demon possession. The dad is desperate for that demon to be driven out. So who does he call? The disciples. They come to drive out the demon, but they couldn't. And to add insult to their impotence, Jesus comes and gives them a dressing down, calling them faithless, and asks a brutal question, how long will I have to put up with you? Now, how do you think they're feeling after that? Probably like dogs licking their wounds. And so as they're still hurting, still embarrassed, still humiliated, not only have Jesus given them a telling off, they suddenly see a stranger doing exactly what they couldn't do. And from cowardly licking their wounds, their hackles instantly rise up. Now, guaranteed you've felt this. Even just trivially, right? Think about it. You know that situation where you're throwing your elbow and you try and get the lid off the jam jar? You know that? And eventually, you collapse on the floor in a heap thinking, man, not even the Hulk could get this bad boy off. And then, what happens? Your wee sister walks in, and without even breaking a grimace. How irritating is that? And what do we all say? I loosened it for you, don't we? That is the the humiliating feeling that John and the rest of the disciples are feeling, having tried to cast out a demon but they could not and all of a sudden some stranger is doing what they were commissioned to do second not only are they still smart and from their own inability to cast out a demon they still have some delusional sense of their own greatness look at verse 33 of chapter 9 they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them Jesus asked them what were you arguing about in the road but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So they've just been told off. They've just heard from Jesus about the brutality and the certainty of his own suffering and death on a cross. And yet like little boys, they are arguing about who's the bestest. It's tragic, isn't it? They should be licking their wounds like a dog, but instead they're arguing like a couple of contestants off The Apprentice. No, I've healed the most people. Ah, well, you may have healed the most people. I've got the best feedback from Jesus on my sermons. Ha! I got to go up the mountain and see him transfigured. I even got a selfie with Moses and Elijah. Isn't it tragic? 
Even when they have just proved their lack of faith in Jesus, there remains a smug faith in their own self-worth. So they're stewing from their own inability not to cast out a demon. They've got a delusional sense of their own greatness. Chuck into the mix. They have an inner circle arrogance. Look at what John says in verse 38. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, we told him to stop Jesus because he was not following you. That's not John's concern. His concern is he's not following us. He's not one of us. See, John loves being one of the boys. He loves being part of the inner circle that the crowd are following. He loves being able to distinguish between us and not one of us. He loves the inner circle. And we all have that seed of arrogance in us, don't we? How much do we love it when someone runs up to us, excitedly hoping to tell us something they think we don't know, but we get to say, I've known that for weeks. (laughs) Don't we love that moment? Because we love to be in the know. We love to be in the inner circle. See, we hate cliques, don't we? Do you not hate cliques? I hate cliques until I'm part of the clique. Then I love cliques. I'm pro-cliques at that point. But here is John, so excited to be part of Jesus' special inner circle that he is completely intolerant of anyone who is on the outside. And these three elements combine into this outburst where he sees this other man working in Jesus' name and he says, I saw it, I'm going to stop it. Now you wonder here, what does John expect to hear in response from Jesus? So he runs up to Jesus, he says, we saw him, we stopped him. What do you think he's expecting from Jesus in return? It must have been he's expecting that kind of pat on the head, good boy. Here's a blue Peter badge, go on your way. What what is he expecting to hear? Jesus has just said, it's about faith being last and being a servant. He has demonstrated faithlessness, wanting to be great and lording it over other people. What do you expect to hear from Jesus? John's like the stupid cat that comes into your home with a dead mouse, guts all over the carpet, and looks at you expecting a reward. What are you thinking? What does Jesus say? Verse 39. Do not stop him. John says, we tried to stop him. Jesus says, don't. The very opposite of what you did, that is what you should do. And Jesus, in the rest of these verses, gives three reasons why this man shouldn't be stopped. It doesn't come across quite in the English, but in the original, the word for comes three times. For is in F-O-R. Three times. Let me give you these three. For, number one. Jesus says, here's why you shouldn't stop him. One. What you're saying is bad, Jesus says is a miracle. John, what you are considering bad, Jesus sees as a miracle. Look at verse 39. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. 
For Jesus, this guy is not a threat to his mission. He is part of the mission. He's operating in Jesus' name. And because of that, he's bearing fruit. Because of his ministry, people are being set free from demon possession. John's concerned about whether it is one of us. Jesus is just concerned that people are getting set free. You can hear Jesus reasoning with John. John, you are not thinking in terms of my ministry. You are only concerned about your ministry. John, what are you thinking? What are you saying? If it's not done by you, would you prefer this guy to stop? And by extension, would you prefer the demon-possessed man to remain demon-possessed? Isn't that the tragedy? Can you imagine if... You know the story of Legion from Mark chapter 5. Imagine that this unnamed stranger that John had seen had been the one that cast out Legion. And can you imagine John going up to Legion after he'd been cast out and saying to Legion, listen Legion, I know this, this guy's got you um, dressed and in your right mind, but actually he shouldn't really have done that. It should have been one of us. And so I'm wondering, man, this is awkward, but I'm wondering if, um, could you go back in the tomb and uh, get naked again and um, shriek and scare people and... And then maybe we could come, and as one of us, we'll come and expel the demon. Do you see the ridiculousness of that? What is John thinking? He is thinking like a Pharisee in Mark's Gospel. Remember the Pharisees? Their concern was they would prefer someone to remain deformed than get healed on the Sabbath. And John's attitude is exactly the same. People may be getting saved, but for John, it is all about him. Here's the point. We must not contain the ministry of Jesus merely to our ministry. You've got to think about Jesus' mission rather than your ministry. And it is better that the work is done by other hands than it not be done at all. See, it's not a bad thing. It is not an evil thing. It is a miracle. And John finds himself here dangerously like the older brother in the story of the prodigal who is outside of the party sulking rather than inside of the party rejoicing. It's not a bad thing, John. It's a miracle. Second reason Jesus gives. For who you are calling an enemy... Jesus says, is an ally. Look at verse 40. Whoever is not against us is for us. John got his big guns out and he points them at the guy and says, stop. Jesus explains, John, tragically you have been engaged in friendly fire. And you've mistaken an ally as an enemy. Now listen, of course there are enemies of God. Of course there are enemies of Christ. There are enemies of the cross. There are enemies of the truth. There are enemies of God's people. There are some who ought to be stopped. And so we should remember that, especially this year, the 500 years since the Reformation, that there are some that we should not partner with. We do not agree with all. 
But we need to be careful that we don't dub someone an enemy to be stopped simply because they are not one of us. You see? The deciding factor is not whether the person is one of us, but whether they are for or against Jesus. We need to be very careful that the deciding factor in answering the question, friend or foe, is partnership with Jesus and not necessarily partnership with us. We've got enough real enemies to be needlessly creating more. And again, actually, John John sounds like a Pharisee here. Remember the Pharisees' attack on Jesus? By the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. This guy who's exercising demons apart from the 12 disciples is not acting in the name of Beelzebub. He is acting in the name of Jesus. And so John cut the friendly fire and let the boy crack on. Third reason. What you are stopping... Jesus is rewarding. Look at verse 41. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose a reward. Again, Jesus shows John that the complete opposite of what he is suggesting is what should be done. John, you've just wrapped this guy's knuckles and given him a verbal warning when Jesus is open-handedly chucking rewards to the guy. And note the ridiculous generosity. When engaged in gospel ministry, even the gift of a glass of water is worthy of reward. Isn't that ridiculous? Even when Edinburgh City Council raise the water and sewerage charges on your council tax bill next year by 1.6%, you would still have to be a tight, stingy Scotsman to expect a reward for a gift of water, wouldn't you? But here is Jesus, lavish, ridiculous in his generosity when he gives a reward for an insignificant act of courtesy. It's like when I praise my seven-month-old boy for burping. It's what a baby's meant to do. And then, oh, could burp. It's ridiculous. But here is generous Jesus giving rewards for the smallest act of service. What's the point? Well, in context, what John is narrow-mindedly intolerant of, Jesus is open-handedly dishing out rewards. Do you see how opposed John and the disciples are with Jesus at this point? For John and the disciples, this is a bad enemy to be stopped. But from Jesus' perspective, it is a miracle-working ally to be rewarded. Do you see how horrible that is? How out of line with Jesus that is? Let me try and explain it. Imagine. Imagine in the board meeting of Cancer Research UK, one of the board members comes and says, listen, I've, uh, I was watching the TV the other day. I saw this terrible advert. It was for um, Macmillan Cancer. I can't, I can't believe there's someone competing with us. But don't worry, I've got the lawyers involved and we're going to get them shut down. Now, if you're someone who's lost someone to cancer and you hear that attitude in Cancer Research UK, what are you thinking? 
Listen. We need to do anything we can to beat cancer. We, we don't want to rule out competition. We want to get everyone we can who is working towards this aim so we can beat this disease, correct? Or imagine the RNLI, you know the lifeboat people, get a call. And Matt's gone out in his rubber dinghy and he's capsized, he's drowning in the Firth of Forth. And the RNLI are on their way, but by the time they get there, Matt's been rescued by a little fisherman in his boat. And imagine the lifeboat men and women coming and saying, how dare you? How dare you come on our turf and rescue our call? What's the point? It doesn't matter who saves the boy as long as he's saved. The same is true for Jesus. Listen, it doesn't matter who sees people saved as long as they're getting saved. John's attitude has become a mirror for me this week, revealing an attitude that's often as offline as his. Now we're going to come to this, but we're mistaken if we leave this episode with John's name on our lips. I wonder if you noted the threefold repetition of a phrase in these verses. Verse 38, in your name. Verse 39, in my name. Verse 41, in my name. The banner over this little episode in Mark's gospel is in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Now this idea of the name of Jesus has been bubbling and brewing and building in Mark's gospel. But in some ways it's been a mysterious thing. Loads of people in the early chapters of Mark have been saying, who is this man? Who is this man? Where does he get his authority? No one seems to know. And in fact, the only people in Mark's gospel, in the early parts, who instinctively know the name of Jesus, are who? The very demons that are about to be driven out by Jesus. They are the ones in Mark's gospel who shout his name. So chapter 3, 24. What do you want with us, Jesus and Nazareth? I know who you are. As he chucks a Bible on the drums. The Holy One of God. Again, chapter 5, verse 7. It's not my Bible, I don't need it. No. <laughs> chapter 5, verse 7. What are you on with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. You see, the demons know his name. They know his name. They fear his name. Why? His name saves. I was joking with Ian Cameron earlier. Devastated that all the hymns we've sung tonight are written in the last 10 years. I like old hymns. Know this one? Jesus in name, high over all. In hell, on earth, or sky, angels and men before it it fall, and devils fear and fly. That's Mark's gospel. They know his name, and so they fear his name. But so far, the disciples are still hazy on it. Even since Peter has confessed in the end of chapter 8, you are the Christ, they're still not quite there. And by this little episode, 
the name of Christ is repeated like a chant from the terraces to confront the arrogance of the disciples. It's as if Jesus says, lads, listen, learn this. Your little self-protecting, self-promoting, arrogant intolerance needs to be decimated. And in its place needs to be built a burning passion for Jesus' name. See, the whole point of Jesus training you 12 disciples is not that his ministry would be contained within you 12, but that his ministry might multiply beyond you. And if you're more concerned about it being your ministry than being involved in the ministry of Jesus, you are the one who should be stopped. It doesn't matter if someone's one of us. What matters is that the name of Jesus is proclaimed. And it doesn't matter if it is a cup of water or a brilliant miracle. What matters is that it's done in Jesus' name. And it matters for this reason. People must hear his name. They must. Peter, who was probably standing next to John when this arrogant outburst came up, will say later on in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they must be saved. If people do not hear the name of Jesus, they will not be saved. If people in Grace Mount do not hear the name of Jesus, they will not be saved. They must hear his name. They need to know he is the Christ Messiah, the promised King. They must hear that he is Jesus, Savior from sin. Because unless they hear his name, There is no exit road from the motorway to hell. And what a tragedy it would be that whilst Christians in Edinburgh squabble like the disciples about themselves, whose ministry is the most important or whose ministry is the most faithful, that while they squabble together, sinners die having never heard of the name of Christ. Do you know what I love about this little section of Mark 9? Is Actually, the ESV picks it up better than the NIV. But the ESV reads this. Teacher, verse 38. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. <laughs> we tried. We, we tried to put an end to him. But he was a ballsy little boy. He was stubborn. And he would not stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. Even when John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, comes and tells him to stop, he tells John to jog on. I like this guy. We need more guys like him. Don't we? An unnamed nobody. History doesn't record his name. I think that's deliberate in this section because it's about Jesus' name. But a nobody passionate about spreading the name of Jesus 
who will not even stop when John tells him to. Are you that guy? Isn't it sad that more often than not we're, we'd be desperate for someone to tell us to stop? Or please tell me that I can stop evangelism. <laughs> that would be, that'd be nice. It made my life easier. But here's a guy who will not stop. He's stubborn for the gospel. He's resolute for the gospel and content to be an unnamed nobody so long as people hear the name of Jesus Christ. There will be people in heaven delighted that when John said stop, this bloke said no danger. Isn't it true that most of us in this room came to faith, humanly speaking, by an unnamed nobody who was just passionate about doing the ministry of Jesus. Is that not true? We need more, more guys like this, passionate about Jesus' name. But listen, we need to be on guard for when we adopt the attitude of John. Too often he's the one I resemble. I limit the ministry of Jesus to my ministry. We identify the faithful churches in our city or who are those in this partnership. And we end up like John being narrower and less tolerant than Jesus himself. Listen, if the East of Scotland Gospel Partnership becomes a one-of-us brigade, then it needs to be bent doesn't it? Because the East of Scotland Gospel Partnership needs to be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever is doing faithful ministry in the name of Jesus. But as I've looked at John this week, I've realized that deep in my heart, I need to uproot the idol of me and enthrone in my heart the name of Jesus. Now, I don't know how this applies to you. I'm not you. I'm not laboring in your context. But let me give you a bunch of questions that Mark chapter 9 has been piercing me with this week. And hopefully you can do that work trying to see where does this apply for me. But let me allow you into my head for a second. What would I be most concerned about if Grace Mount Community Church fails and never gets off the ground? My reputation or the name of Jesus? And by the way, that could be what happens. 30% of church plants fail by year four. But it's worth the risk, isn't it? Might as well have a go. How would my heart respond if revival broke out in another church across the street, would I rejoice with the angels in heaven or would I be jealous like John and his little clique? Will I be quick to pass on ministry responsibilities and delegate roles to others or will I dominate everything to ensure I can continue to stroke my ego? As a church, Will Grace Mount Community Church be generous in sending out our brightest and our best for the sake of others here in Jesus' name? Or will we want to maintain our numbers and our own comfort? How do we make sure that we don't make our way of doing things 
the standard of faithfulness to Jesus and end up being less tolerant than him. As a launch team, who by the way have been a really tight-knit group of people for about three years, as a launch team, will we be willing to quickly hand over ministry to new believers and new members or will we keep what we think is ours? Or again, as a small team that's developed deep relationships, will we become a clique that keeps others out or will we welcome them in the name of Jesus? Or am I as willing to serve in the unseen, seemingly insignificant ways, like giving someone a gift of water, as much as I'm willing to preach at an event like this? Do you see the way that this little story pierces the heart? What about those of us in ministry? We need to be particularly careful, especially when our ministries have recently been fruitless, that we don't allow a cancer-like jealousy to swallow our concern for the passion of Jesus' name rather than being concerned for our own reputation. Listen, this is my battle. I can be so self-obsessed. I can be so concerned about my own ego. You need to pray that in me, in you, the burning passion, the greatest zeal is that we might be forgotten so long as people hear of Jesus' name. Amen? We need an attitude like Paul. Paul's surprising in Philippians 1. It's almost annoying. Listen to this in Philippians 1.15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now what would you expect Paul to say next? Let's go and stop them. Do you know what he says? What does it matter? The important thing, he says, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, listen, I actually don't even care about the motivation as long as Christ's name is being proclaimed. Bottom line, here is what Edinburgh needs. Less Johns. Here's what Edinburgh needs. More unnamed strangers bashing on with gospel ministry spread in the name of Jesus. Bottom line, here is what Edinburgh needs. More and more opportunities to hear the name of Christ because there is no other name given under heaven to mankind by which they must be saved. So let me ask you, who's next? We're six weeks away. We're going over the top. Who's next? You should be able to ask your church elders that question and they should be able to say 
This is our next church plan. If they can't, bug them until they do. But in the same way, let me ask you, who are you next going to share the gospel with? And if you can't answer that question, your elders should bug you until you do. Because people must hear Jesus. Because salvation is found nowhere else. Let me finish with some words from old hymns. Because I love them. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel, seeing only him. Amen? Happy if with my latest breath I might but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. How sweet. In a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Dear name, the rock on which I built, my shield and hiding place, my never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Our Father in heaven, place extinguish in us any arrogant flame that flickers for the sake of our own reputation and instead light a flame, fan a flame for the passion of Jesus' name that sinners might be saved that the lost may be found that the wanderers might be gathered home and the name of Jesus exalted in this city and beyond. And we pray this in the only way we can, which is in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen.